0: From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, NPR's Ron Elving on the weekend politics: one less Democrat in the Senate, the House speakership in doubt, and later, reporting on a brutal campaign against women by the Nigerian military. Also. Why are so many publishers eager to print the report of the January 6th committee, even though, as English professor Craig Warren says,
1: most government reports read like the instruction manual to a microwave oven. (laughs) You know, they're really tedious, they're stilted, they are dry.
0: But This one might have Dash, and then two brothers who paint the Old West with the music of their guitars. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, December 10, 2022.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. A high-ranking European Union lawmaker is under investigation for taking bribes from a Gulf state. Terry Schultz reports she's one of several people linked to the EU legislature snared in a corruption probe by Belgian officials. The Belgian federal prosecutor announced raids on more than a dozen houses as authorities investigate influence peddling by what's identified officially only as a Gulf state. Multiple media outlets report that country is Qatar and that European Parliament Vice President Eva Kaley from Greece is among those taken in for questioning. Kaley raised eyebrows last month when she gave a speech praising Qatar's human rights record. Her Greek party, PASOK, says she's been expelled due to the allegations. Kaley's political group in the European Parliament, the Socialists and Democrats, refuses to comment on the case, but says it will cooperate fully. It also recommends the European Parliament suspend work and votes related to Gulf states. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. India will not go to Russia for an annual summit this year. The country has not formally condemned Russia's war in Ukraine, but has hinted disapproval. Raksha Kumar reports. India and Russia have
3: held an annual summit for the past 21 years. This year, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi said he had scheduling issues and called it off. The two countries meet to improve strategic and military relations. Modi and Vladimir Putin had met in September during another international forum in Uzbekistan. At that meeting, Modi told his Russian counterpart that this was not an era for war. However, last week, India's external minister reiterated that India will continue to import oil from Russia. India has paid about $20
2: billion to Russia for fuel since the war began. For NPR News, Raksha Kumar in Mumbai. Environmentalists are asking Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack to revoke the permits for the Uinta Basin Railway in the Southwest. Aspen Public Radio's Hallie Zander has more. The 88 mile railroad would connect oil fields in Northeast Utah to existing rail lines, allowing more
4: crude oil to travel by rail across Utah and Colorado. A coalition of activists called Stop the Uinta Basin Railway is leading a national day of action today to pressure Vilsack and the Biden administration to stop the project. Protests are planned throughout the day in Idaho, Utah, Colorado, Colorado and Washington D.C. Organizers worry derailments could cause devastating spills along the Colorado River and on indigenous land. If built, up to 10 trains with 110 rail cars could carry crude oil along this route
2: every day. For NPR News, I'm Hallie Zander. In the west, areas of the Sierra Nevada are bracing for a major snowstorm as much as four feet of snow are forecast near Lake Tahoe. This is NPR News in Washington.
5: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Federal Transit Administration is rejecting more than half of the MBTA's proposed safety plans. In a scathing report released in August, the FTA identified several urgently needed safety upgrades for the T. The Boston Globe reports this is the second time the FTA has sent the T back to the drawing board. The rejected plans include proposals to improve hiring, improve risk monitoring, and increase the independence of the T's quality control. The T has to submit new plans by January 3rd. A Somerville bridge is reopening today ahead of the MBTA's new Green Line extension. The School Street Bridge has been closed since April 2020 to accommodate construction on the nearby Gilman Square stop. Gilman Square is one of five new T-stops slated to open Monday in Somerville and Medford. The new Union Square stop in Somerville opened earlier this year. Worcester wants to transform your unwanted guns. The city's police department is holding a buyback program today to collect the weapons in exchange for gift cards worth up to $150. Worcester Deputy Police Chief Ed McGinn says any gun in a home is a potential danger.
6: Sometimes when domestic squabbles take place, all reason goes out the window. So that's a threat. Accidental shootings with kids and also people in the midst of depression or a mental
7: crisis.
5: Unloaded guns can be dropped off at the Worcester Police Department and several other police departments in Worcester County. The weapons will be destroyed and the metal will be repurposed by local blacksmiths. It's 32 degrees in Boston, a slight chance of some snow showers this afternoon and highs in the mid-30s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet.
8: Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com slash gig. The Museum of Science with seasonal exhibit all aboard, trains at Science Park, plus 4-D and omnitheater adventures like the Polar Express. Tickets at mos.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thanks for joining us this weekend. 51, 50, but really 48. Oh, Senate math gets complicated. Uh, joining us now to talk about the week in politics, as he does most Saturdays, NPR's Ron Elvin. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. No sooner do Democrats solidify uh, a majority in the Senate with uh, Senator Warnock winning in Georgia than Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona says she's now an independent she won't caucus with Republicans, however. What do you see in her decision, especially right now? It's more about Kirsten
7: Cinema and her standing in Arizona than it's about where things stand in the Senate, Scott. Uh, Back home, she has reaped very little benefit from her efforts to be a centrist-style broker in Washington. And she has been key to some bipartisan deals on infrastructure and marriage. Uh, But she's also been a vote against a higher minimum wage and higher taxes on wealth. So the AARP in Arizona ran a poll this fall showing cinema was viewed unfavorably by more Democrats than Republicans or Independents. And she was also viewed unfavorably by 54 percent of likely voters overall. So she was looking at a tough 2024 primary. This way, if she runs, she may find a lane between the parties, especially if the Democrats were to nominate someone well to her left. And if the Republicans nominated someone like Carrie Lake, their last candidate for governor, who this week is still filing lawsuits, insisting she won the election she lost last month.
0: How does uh, Senator Sinema's switch uh, affect uh, the calculations of Democrats for what they can accomplish or not in the Senate of the next Congress? At this point, the Democrats don't
7: think it needs to change that calculation much. Sinema still appears ready to organize with the Democrats. That's what two other independents are already doing, the Bernie Sanders of Vermont, Angus King of Maine. And cinema was already a hard vote for the Democrats to get on many issues, including the filibuster and Biden's spending bills. So it might not make that much difference.
0: Uh, Let's get to the Georgia runoff. In your estimation, Juan, what did the Reverend Senator Warnock do um, so well to hold on to his seat? And are there larger lessons for his party? He did a number of things right.
7: A number of things that ought to be lessons for his party. He focused on turnout in his base in the metro areas of the state, especially the mega metro around Atlanta. He actually increased his winning margin there compared to the vote last month. But while he kept his focus on his core supporters, he was also reaching out to the more moderate voters among the Republicans, making it harder for opponents to demonize him. And finally, he caught a break in running against the Senate candidate who was handpicked by former President Trump. And that, of course, was Herschel Walker, the former football star. And like nearly all of Trump's other Senate picks, uh, Walker proved to be, shall we say, a disappointing and problematic candidate. (laughs)
0: Let me ask you about the House. Did this week uh, give us a glimpse of what life might be like under the new Republican majority? Yes, or at least a, a taste of what the first course might
7: be. The Republican nominee for Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, still lacks the votes he needs to win a majority of the whole House. He needs virtually every Republican to vote for him in order to reach the majority of the whole House. So he's got a handful of his own party members already saying they don't plan to vote for him. And there's an even larger group holding out to negotiate their votes. And he has an announced rival within his party who could force the vote into multiple rounds of balloting on January 3rd and on January 4th and January 5th, and that would be chaos. So it's entirely possible he won't be Speaker after all, Scott, and it's far from clear just who would be able to pick up the pieces. In the meantime, there's a lot of angry talk coming from the incoming majority about President Biden's son, Hunter. Uh, That's not new, but some of them are also upset about... Biden giving up Russian arms dealer in exchange a Russian arms dealer in exchange for American basketball star Brittany Griner last week so it looks like it's going to be a nasty start to the new year
0: well it'll be good to talk to you about all of it when we get underway <laughs> uh, that, that part of the year I'll look forward to okay
7: and uh, so will I Scott thank you
0: NPR's Ron Elving Maine consistently ranks as one of the most white states in the country, but this week, it swore in the most diverse state legislature in its history, including its first black speaker of the house, its first black woman state senator, and its first two Somali-American state representatives.
9: Maine Public Radio's Ari Snyder has this report. At an election night watch party on November 8th, South Portland Mayor Deca Delac posed for a photo with supporters after winning her race for the state house. Delac is one of two Somali Americans elected to the State House this year, a historic first for Maine. At the watch party, Delac said she wants her victory to inspire immigrant youth.
5: So that these young people can say, you know, the House is mine too, the Senate is mine too, the City Council is mine too.
9: Delac is a Democrat, and she's one of five black lawmakers in the 131st Maine Legislature, which was sworn in on December 7th at the State House in Augusta. Even though the number of lawmakers of color is still relatively small, the legislature now has a higher percentage of black people than the state as a whole. Democrats retained their trifecta control of state government in this year's midterms, meaning DeLock will serve in the majority under another history-making representative.
1: I declare that Rachel Talbot Ross of Portland has been elected Speaker of the House of Representatives of the 131st Maine Legislature.
9: Halbert Ross, a Portland Democrat, is the first black person to hold that position in the state's history. And she called attention to the changing demographic composition of the legislature during her first remarks as Speaker.
10: We sit in this room embarking on our shared work as the most diverse legislature in the history of Maine. It is my unwavering belief, though, that we are one Maine.
9: Mark Brewer is a political science professor at the University of Maine. He says increased diversity in an elected body can have a measurable impact on policy. He says that's been the case as more women have been elected to Congress.
11: More women holding seats in Congress did. The kind of stuff that Congress dealt with
9: change, and the answer is yes, right? In Maine, all five black lawmakers in the legislature are Democrats. Brewer says that tracks with two national trends— the Democratic Party generally nominating more diverse slates of candidates, and the party finding greater electoral success in more diverse urban places. One exception to that trend is Democratic State Senator Craig Hickman, a poet and farmer who is the longest serving black lawmaker in Augusta. He represents an overwhelmingly white, mostly rural district. Now, Hickman says he's taking in the historic gains in diversity and reflecting on what needs to be done to build on those gains.
12: Because we know that equality of opportunity isn't necessarily there for everyone, but that's why we're here. We're fighting to make that a reality, to move, to bend that arc of the moral universe toward justice just a little bit faster.
9: And while five black lawmakers out of 186 is still a relatively small group, Hickman says it carries deep meaning for him.
12: There are four other people in the Maine legislature who look like me. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty humbling. It's pretty inspiring. Hickman says it's
9: a big change from when he was first elected to the State House in 2012. That year, he was the only black lawmaker in the legislature. For NPR News, I'm Ari Snyder in Augusta, Maine.
0: More than a million people have reportedly tried out ChatGPT, a new chatbot from the research lab OpenAI, AI, for artificial intelligence. Users can ask it questions or submit prompts for poems, term papers, or essays. It makes mistakes, Callum Chase, the author and expert on AI, told us, and plagiarizes from the Internet. But the speed and quality is remarkable. And our plagiarism software packages are already hard-pressed, their work probably just became impossible. I asked Chat GPT to write a poem about childhood. Within seconds, it sent back these lines, Childhood, a time of wonders, a time of joy and fun, and went on to invoke trees, mud pies, innocence, and the sound of cicadas. What? No puppies? Katha Pollitt, one of America's great poets and critics, read that poem and told us, Clichéd and tiresome, I don't think Auden has to worry about his laurels. I then asked ChatGPT to conjure a verse about bagels in the style of William Shakespeare. "'Tis a bagel around delight," the a chatbot burped back, a breakfast treat to make us bright, a crisp, chewy texture to please, a sprinkle of sesame for ease. It went on to speak of cream, but not cream cheese. I asked the bot for bagel poems in the styles of W.H. Auden and Emily Dickinson. It flashed out highly similar verses that simply removed the Shakespearean, "'Tis,' from the first line. Cathapolet wasn't impressed. No wordplay or anything to think about, she told us. They're a collection of cliches, which is not surprising. The bot has not had any experiences or emotions and no imagination. It has no sense of the multiple meanings and resonances of words. So how could it write a good poem? It is inviting to end with that critical slam dunk from a great poet to dismiss chatbots that write, draw, or Soon, I'm sure, talk like a radio host. But Callum Chase cautions that artificial intelligence software will keep learning. It has no human experiences, but also no human foibles, like exhaustion, distraction, anxiety, or forgetfulness. Humans may soon become, he says, quote, the second smartest species on the planet. It will be the most important event in human history, bar none. The outcome may well be fabulous for humanity, but that is not guaranteed. So be courteous to bots. Maybe they'll remember us kindly when their day arrives. And thou art listening to NPR News.
5: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Ahead on Weekend Edition Saturday, you'll get the story on how the effects of climate change have led the federal government to give millions of dollars to tribal communities in Alaska to help them move to higher ground. Stay informed with a full range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. We're funded
8: by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage, presenting The Play That Goes Wrong, part Monty Python, part Sherlock Holmes, all mayhem, now through December 18th. Tickets at LyricStage.com. Good News Garage. Over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing, goodnewsgarage.org. And UMass Chan Medical School proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe.
2: I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. Prominent American soccer writer Grant Wall died suddenly yesterday covering the World Cup competition in Qatar. He was 48. He collapsed during a game and was rushed to a hospital. No cause of death has been declared. After nearly 10 months, WNBA All-Star Brittany Griner is home after a high-profile U.S. prisoner exchange with Russia. Russian arms dealer Victor Boot was swapped for the two-time Olympian who was jailed for a minor drug offense. The Keystone XL pipeline in the news again with a spill at its pipeline in a creek in rural Kansas estimated to be enough to fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Subaru, whose Share the Love event runs through January 3rd. By year's end, Subaru and their retailers will have donated over $250 million to charity. Learn more at Subaru.com share. And from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world, with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly, for ages 3 and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash NPR. This is NPR.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Nigeria's military has been fighting Boko Haram, an Islamist extremist movement, in the north of the country for more than a decade. The United Nations says the conflict has killed more than 300,000 people. The insurgents gained global notoriety in 2014 after they abducted more than 250 high school girls from the town of Chibok. Now an investigation by Reuters has exposed a shocking campaign by the Nigerian military, a secret mass abortion program that's been in operation since 2013. We're joined now by one of the journalists who worked on that story, David Lewis, who is in Nairobi. And uh, just this caution, our conversation will contain descriptions of sexual violence. Mr. Lewis, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. This is difficult to talk about, but uh, please tell us what you found. Around 10,000
3: pregnancies were terminated. Uh, These were women and girls, many of whom had been kidnapped by the Islamist insurgents. So they'd not only been taken from their homes, they'd spent time in the bush with the Boko Haram or Islamic State insurgents. And then they'd escaped or been rescued by the military.
0: When you say spent time, they were essentially kidnapped. They were, yeah, they were kidnapped, they were forcibly
3: married off to fighters. Several women told us stories of being married to one fighter and then if that husband, as they, they were forcibly married to these men, so they were calling them husbands, and if the husband didn't return, they were just married off to another one. So these women had, had harrowing stories and they obviously experienced not just the danger that the, the dire situation of living in the bush and the, and the war, but then when they escaped, the women who were, were pregnant uh, were given abortions. And we spoke to thirty three women and girls who say they went underwent the procedures.
0: and forgive me, this will be rough to hear, but can you tell us um, how those procedures were often conducted?
3: More often than not, the women we spoke to um, the procedures happened without their prior knowledge. At times, they were told you know, that they were being given pills or injections to to boost their health because these women were coming out of the bush. Where they obviously had no healthcare and they were ill. Some had malaria. They described at times deception, at times physical
0: force. Could you tell us the uh, the story of Hafsat?
3: Yes. Yeah, so she was a a girl of about fourteen or fifteen years old, um, and in early 2019, she'd been rescued, uh, and we heard this story from two soldiers, uh, and they said that she came to a an army clinic. Uh, she was lying on the ground with a, with several other women, other girls who'd been rescued. They gave her an injection. And soon afterwards, um, the soldiers described seeing her, her bleeding heavily from between her legs. And not long after that, she was dead.
0: There was a soldier who remembered that in particular, wasn't there? There were two soldiers.
3: Um, yeah. One of the soldiers told us at the end of the interview that he would never forget her name.
0: Why would the Nigerian military want to undertake this kind of campaign?
3: According to our reporting, the, the security personnel and some of the civilian healthcare workers who were involved, they said that the, the belief was that the children were predestined by their blood to take up arms against the government because the perception was that these were the children of Boko Haram, and therefore um, they too would become Islamist insurgents. Now, of course, the Nigerian military denies the program exists at all.
0: You have asked them for reaction, I gather.
3: We have. We we presented our findings to the Nigerian government and the Nigerian military, and the military has vehemently denied the program. They say it doesn't exist. They said it would be impossible to hide these abuses from the international and local aid groups that are operating up in the northeast of Nigeria. They said that everyone has free access to
0: see what they're doing. Is that true? Reuters, other news organizations, for that matter, civilian oversight groups have free access?
3: There are restrictions on on where people can go and when they can go in in northeastern Nigeria. We put the question to the UN whether they have free access, um, but the UN office in Nigeria declined to comment. But the UN Secretary General has called for an investigation into the, the allegations.
0: Mr. Lewis, this conflict between Nigeria and Boko Haram is 13 years old now is there any sight of a resolution of any kind?
3: Well, the Nigerian military says it's making great strides in its its battle against Boko Haram, and and certainly compared to 2014, perhaps, or 2015, when a large number of urban areas were occupied by Islamist militants. These groups have been pushed out of those cities. The conflict is now largely in the rural areas. And over the last few months, there have been a spread of uh, attacks into other parts of The country so further to the west and and to the south so um at the moment there doesn't seem to be an end in sight
0: david lewis is reuters africa special correspondent thank you so much for being with us you're welcome sentence we've all uttered at one point in our lives, I don't care. But now I don't care is also the title of a new children's book by Julie Fogliano.
14: I don't care is about all of the things that are and are not important to a kid when they're looking for a friend.
0: She's written, I really don't care what you think of my hair or my eyes or my toes or my nose.
14: So the beginning of the book is kind of like all the things they don't care about. They They don't care what their hair is like or what their lunch is like. And then the second part of the book is about all the things they really do care about.
0: I care if you wish, I care if you sing, and I care if you like to lean back when you swing.
14: I feel like when kids are little, they really genuinely don't care about a lot of things. They don't care what they look like. They don't care what they're wearing. They're not judgy in that same way that we are now. I liked being able to capture that little moment in time when... They didn't care what people thought of them.
0: Julie Fogliano's story about two best friends ended up on the desk of illustrator Molly Idle.
4: When I first read that first line that Julie was talking about, I really don't care what you think of my hair or my eyes or my toes or my nose, you know, I heard I and you, and I thought it's a conversation between two people who are on the surface, maybe seemingly very different, but at their cores are very, very similar. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's just like me and Juana.
0: And that would be Juana Martinez-Neal. Molly and Juana met 16 years ago. They started out as critique partners. They ended up best friends. And Molly decided to volunteer Juana as her co-illustrator on this project.
15: I was uh, nervous and confused and uh, <laughs> did not want to say no because I love Molly and she's my best friend. I mean, how could I say no? <laughs>
0: For our children's book series, Picture This, we talked to Juana Martinez-Neal, Molly Idle, and Julie Fogliano about their picture book, I Don't Care.
14: When I wrote the book, I really, first of all, didn't know I was writing a book. I was just like kind of writing, and I didn't know who was talking. I didn't know who they were speaking to. I didn't know how many people were there. I kind of just like wrote these words. And when Molly first read it, like she was saying, she read it as two voices that totally rearranged my whole thinking about the book and... So I was kind of like, oh, do it how you see it, because my book would have been boring with one kid just talking to who knows who. When we
4: started work on the manuscript, Juana and I lived about a half hour away from each other, both in Arizona. And so we thought, well, gosh, this will be relatively easy. Some days we'll work at Juana's studio. Some days we'll work at my studio. And then Juana's family ended up relocating to Connecticut. But we knew we could figure it out. Like, if we could figure out, like, our friendship long distance, figuring out how to pass the art back and forth long distance shouldn't be too big a deal, but it did, it definitely influenced the way in which we wanted to make the art because we knew that we had to use mediums and color palettes that we could keep consistent despite distance and despite having to ship the art back
15: and forth. We were going to use graphite, and then we used two colors, and we said, okay, let's go with our favorite colors. My favorite color is yellow, Molly's was teal, and then when, when they overlap with printmaking, then we will get green. I was hoping that the book will have more of a classic feel. With that in mind, I was thinking, okay, so paper color was an important choice. It could not be just white. We needed the paper to have a particular tone of cream or warmer tone. So I find a list of, I don't know, 12 to 20 papers, Mm -hmm. different sizes, different colors, and then give that same list to Molly. So we both order it. It gets to our houses. And now we have to make test drawings on each one of the papers to find our favorite ones we wanted to make it sort of like a blind taste test
4: like a blind drawing test and so we had each like created our own numerical system for like marking these papers not knowing what brand they were or like what the name of them was we didn't want to be unduly influenced and then agreed like we'll give ourselves a week then we'll convene and we'll swap our list of our top three papers. And then we will compare notes and see if we can't find a happy medium. And our top three papers were exactly the same top three papers out of all those papers. And our number one choice was the same one. was the same one. So it was so. an easy choice. <laughs> we were so pleasantly surprised because we were prepared for like Thunderdome, but with paper. And, <laughs> and it just turned out to be the nicest thing.
15: It just confirmed the fact that we, that's why we were friends. <laughs> that's it,
4: art nerds unite.
15: <laughs> now, Molly and I both have very distinctive styles. We couldn't use texture because I love texture, and, and Molly doesn't. And, and I use brushstrokes, heavy brush strokes, and Molly's work is very smooth, seamless almost. So we had to figure out a way to make the book where we level the playing field. <laughs> And we decided, okay, each one of us will sketch our own character. And then we swap. And when we looked at each other's work, we tried to put us together in one page. On Photoshop, actually. We are traditional artists, but we were trying to compare how the work will look next to each other. And for that, we used Photoshop.
4: It was like this wonderful creative exercise, figuring out, like, wow, I draw next twice as thick as you draw necks, so let's meet in the middle. Or you draw heads bigger than I draw heads, so you decrease your head size by 20% and I'll increase mine by 20%. For me, that was the most fun when we were making the art, was when I would open this package and there was Juana's artwork. And then to like It feels very strange to touch somebody else's artwork when you are used to illustrating on your own. And we made this first swap, and then we got on the phone, and we realized that neither one of us had worked for, like, two weeks because we were just so afraid to touch the other person's artwork. (laughs) Like, oh, gosh. So we were both just like, we just have to do it. As soon as we did that, it was like that
15: fear left, like, okay, we can do this. And I think it looks seamless when you look mm-hmm. at the work. It looks seamless, but at the same time you see we still have Molly and Juana within
14: mm-hmm. the sk- The drawings. is just a little tweaked. I'm not a visual person. When I write, I hear the words, I don't see anything. So it's always such a thrill to see the finished product, to see the characters finally. I, t- I always have this feeling of like, oh, there you are. Like, I've been waiting to meet you. And these two, the two girls that they created. It just gave it more depth, I think, to have the relationship between the two kids and knowing like the personal connection between the two of them and like the kind of love and you know everything that they share as friends in actual real life. It just gave it more personal perspective, I guess.
4: I totally agree. Mm-hmm. And like Juana and I have talked about how the more personal a story mm-hmm. is, somehow the more universal it usually is, too, like the connections. When we read the manuscript, Juana and I said, oh, it's just like us. It's us. But, of course, yeah. you didn't write it for us, and right. I can only imagine that that kids are going to read it and think, oh, that's us. That's us. Mm-hmm. And that's the best thing when it comes from someplace so deep that it's coming from a place that resonates on a universal level.
0: Molly Idle, Julie Fogliano, and Juana Martinez-Neal talking about their children's book, I don't care. Our series Picture This is produced by Samantha Balaman. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. There are words that roll off the tongue smoothly, liltingly, and there are words that just sort of crash into a pile-up off the tip of
12: the tongue. And I was going to say the same yeah. Tongue of Viloa. So you say tongue first, O-V-I-L-O-A.
15: Adele. Adele. Adele.
0: Cocktail. A Miami Dolphins quarterback, a Grammy-winning British singer, are among the names that are the most mispronounced words of 2022. According to the Captioning Group, which provides live captions to broadcast TV across America, they have compiled this list for eight years at the behest of the folks at
16: Babel. The purpose of it is to have a little bit of a snapshot of what has happened in the year but also to showcase a little bit the difficulties we have of being part of a multicultural connected world
0: that's esteban Bantuma, the senior content producer and language teacher at babel or should that be babel he admits to tripping over a few names himself i mean i think it's always easy to say that bj leiterman i'm sorry lederman writes her theme music Esteban Tumas says the words chosen for the annual list of mispronounced words bubble up from people and places in the news. And some, like that Negroni, get on the list thanks to social media.
16: TikTok in this case. Emma Darcy was introducing the world to their favorite drink, and the way they said it uh, was incorrect. Spagliato is not spagliato, it's spagliato. Uh, But the word spagliato means incorrect or mistake in Italian. So I thought it was fascinating that they were pronouncing the word incorrect, incorrectly.
10: The beverage, Negroni Spaliato. Of
0: course, NPR newscaster Corva Coleman nailed it. She's a professional, unlike you know me. Got an Icelandic volcano that spelled E Y J A F J A L L A J O K U L L. Stand back.
10: I f j a n o j o c l a. I f j a n o j o c l a. I f j a n o j o c l a.
0: Yeah. Yeah, what she said. Every hour, every day, the peerless Corva encounters words she has to get right on the air. What's her technique?
10: You want to ask other people? You can look up a gazetteer in the Encyclopedia Britannica. You can call an embassy. You can actually look up the U.S. Department of State to find out how they might say it. You can look up the National Geographic. It's always worthwhile looking it up because if you don't, you're going to be very surprised.
0: However, I've often found the pronunciation guides people provide to be as difficult to say correctly as the words and names you're trying to say. We asked Corva Coleman to run through this year's list of most mispronounced words.
10: Adele, the British singer. Chick Chalub from Mexico. Donald Gleason is the actor. Edinburgh, like, hey, bruh, what's up? The tennis player, Novak Djokovic. The baseball player, Otani. Oh, Lord. Yes, yes, have we stumped the great Corva Coleman? I know it's Tua, but you want me to say his first name? <sighs> Tua ning a manu ole pola. Tua nigaman o lua ila pola. Tua ning a manu ole poa. Tua, Tua tango valoa. We'll just do that. Tua, I know you're a great man. Sorry I messed up your name.
0: Curva, that's why great team athletes have numbers on their backs. Now playing quarterback for the Miami Dolphins, number one, two, uh, you know the rest. This is NPR News.
5: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts is dealing with a high number of flu cases arriving earlier than usual. The Department of Public Health says last week more than 5,000 people tested positive for the flu. That is about double the number in the previous week. And flu rates are higher now than at any time over the past three years. Doctors say prevention measures are critical. They are urging people to get vaccinated against the flu, to wear masks, and to stay home when sick. The Worcester Police Department is holding a gun buyback program today. Police are collecting weapons in exchange for gift cards worth up to $150. People can drop off unloaded guns at the Worcester Police Department and several other police departments in Worcester County. The weapons will be destroyed and the metal will be repurposed by local blacksmiths. It's 32 degrees in Boston, a slight chance of some snow showers this afternoon and highs in the mid-30s.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Holiday Pops, helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of year by unwrapping the magic of the Holiday Pops, now through December 24th, holidaypops.org. Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com gig. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com.
12: On last week's Wait, Wait, guest Dana Carvey told us that not only did President George H.W. Bush like his impersonation, he would call Carvey up to chat.
1: I said, isn't your son running for re-election today? I mean, he goes, Yeah. But
12: how are you doing? <laughs> I'm Peter Segel. We'll feature somebody doing an amazing Gail King impression. That is, Gail King. Join us for the news quiz from NPR.
9: Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9
17: WBUR.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at Asylum.News. And from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol is set to release its report on December 21st, just before Christmas. What's inside is a mystery to you, to me, and to the many book publishers hoping to rush the report to the printers and be the first to get it into your hands. It appears Andrew Limbong has more on why they're in such a hurry to put out something you can get online for free.
16: Dennis Johnson is the co-founder of Melville House, one of at least six book publishers who've announced they'll be releasing the January 6th report. But he doesn't have any inside scoops on what the report will contain. It's a public
18: document paid for by the citizens of the United States. And we just, like everybody else, wait for it to show up on the government's website as a, as a PDF, most likely.
16: Hopefully it's a high-quality PDF that's searchable and isn't formatted all weird. And also, hopefully, it isn't too long.
18: If it's a 6,500-page report with, uh, you know, 10,000 pages of transcripts, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna
16: let somebody else publish that
18: <laughs> I'm going to hold them to it. I'm going to make Penguin or whoever it was uh, live up to their promise to publish it.
16: Or HarperCollins or Hachette or Macmillan. It takes a lot of work to get a book from PDF to page. There's the layout, the typesetting. If there are a bunch of redactions, that can be a whole other can of worms. But for Johnson, he sees it as a public good to solidify the public record. In a way that's more accessible than a hard to read document at the bottom of some government website. It's also a way to make sure things don't go unnoticed. In 2014, the Senate released the torture report, their investigation into the CIA's detention and interrogation program. It was an unassuming drop a few weeks before Christmas. It just appeared. Nobody knew it was coming. And obviously it was an attempt to kind
18: of squash the impact of the report. And it was such an important document that we literally worked around the clock. We had staff in 24 hours a day uh, for a little over a week, laying it out and actually making the book.
16: There's also the chance that the book could be a huge hit. It's not very often that a government report,
1: you know, has the opportunity to reach this many Americans.
16: That's Craig Warren, English professor at Penn State. In 2007, he published an article in the Journal of American Studies about the 9-11 Commission report and its impact on the American reading public.
1: Most government reports read like the instruction manual to a microwave oven. You know, they're really tedious. They're stilted. They are dry. Uh, They usually use really technical language. When the 9-11 report was published in the summer of 2004, it didn't sound anything like that.
16: It was written with a sense of narrative thrust, of drama, and Americans devoured it. People who weren't usually the types of people to read government documents bought and read it, making it a bestseller. Of course, the January 6th report is entering a very different America. Some publishers are choosing to include their version of the document with a foreword. The one from HarperCollins will be by MSNBC anchor Ari Melber. The Penguin Random House version includes a foreword by Congressman Adam Schiff. Skyhorse is publishing one with a foreword from a President Trump ally named Darren Beattie, whose website regularly publishes election denial conspiracies. Dennis Johnson from Melville House is opting to release theirs without an introduction at all.
18: Because we think the document should speak for itself and that People can read this. We can, you know, we can have a little faith in the average American reader to uh, take this primary material and assess it for themselves.
16: Could the report heal the political fractures in this country? Sure. Will it? Who knows? But either way, it'll be a part of history. Andrew Limbung, NPR News.
0: Training for the World Cup is tough. Running, sprinting. More running. We're not even talking about the players.
1: They have to train year-round. They're doing off-season training, and they have these fitness tests that they have to pass to be chosen for the World Cup.
0: But it takes to referees soccer's premier tournament. That's tomorrow with Aisha on Weekend Edition Sunday. You can listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Music can transport us like the latest tracks from the band Romanos Gutierrez, which take us back in time to the Old West. The new album from Armando Gutierrez is called El Bueno y El Malo. And the band's two members, of course, are brothers Alejandro and Esteban Gutierrez, and they both join us now. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being with us.
19: Thank you, Scott. Oh, thank you so much, Scott, for having us. It's a pleasure.
0: Let me begin by asking you, Alejandro. I gather this album's a travelogue of sorts. Your own travelogue, based on where you go, where you tour, what you've seen?
19: Oh, yeah, definitely. I think as brothers, we did some traveling around the world, and um, it always had a. It was a big inspiration to be on the road with my brother. And uh, we came back from those journeys, and we always got inspired, and we wrote new music. Estevan? Um, We're a
20: good team, a travel team, even though sometimes we also get to our limits being together. (laughs) But at the end, it's always a a beautiful inspiration to be on the road, and and we saw so many beautiful places, and it's yeah, we're so grateful.
0: Of course, uh, el bueno y el malo, the good and the bad. It's hard not to hear some of this and, and not think about the good, the bad, and the ugly.
19: Oh yeah, it is. Um, I remember when we wrote the song El Bueno el Malo, um, we didn't have a title for the the record, not even for the song. And um, I played the wrong chord on my guitar and my brother just looked at me and he was like, hey, why don't you play like that? And he said to me, you know what, I'm gonna play a new melody over that new um, melody of mine. The first note just um, stuck with me. It was just just transmit me to the Ennio Morricone um, landscape. And I think it just set the whole mood for the whole record. And that was uh, one of those magical moments.
0: The whole soundscape evokes open space, lonely prairies, big, enfolding skies. That's what we're meant to hear?
20: Yeah, I mean, you know, we we started because my brother moved away, and so we weren't that close together. And so we missed each other, and and one night my brother called me, hey, why don't you come over the next day? It's a a one-hour drive, and why don't you take your guitar with you? I I went to his house, and um, we started to play, and then we felt the connection. There is something in, in, in our simple guitar playing that has such a, an energy, such a power. That was beautiful to feel that. And it's always something magical to, to feel this connection between us.
0: Alejandro uh, Gutierrez, uh, words would just get in the way. You let your guitars do the talking.
19: I think it's always been an ambition to keep it instrumental because we we got inspired by so many great film scores so we always believe that uh, we want to create something similar Um, something which every listener can put his own experience his part in it and I think lyrics sometimes can just give too much of a direction of the song keeping instrumental it just um, we just love that feeling
0: May I
20: ask you both what were you like as brothers growing up? Well, we have an age difference of eight years. I'm the oldest, he's the youngest of four siblings. But we all always had this connection between us. It's just um, like best friends, like real brothers.
19: Oh, yeah. I think he was the one who inspired me to pick up the guitar. He left to Ecuador for one year. It was again a feeling of missing my brother. I. started to play the guitar because maybe I just wanted to be like him, you know. But it's music keeping us together and um, we stay connected.
0: Another song uh, toward the end of your album, Love or Dead. What would you like people to, uh, who are listening to that song to envision
20: or realize? Every song of ours is like a journey itself, and, and it starts always slow, and it gives you time to think and to, to feel yourself. This is also the, the, the same thing that we want to do with La Verdad, it means the truth. Uh, it's like finding your own truth in your soul.
0: I've been blessed to travel all over the world, but I'm afraid I'm that kind of traveler that I fall asleep in the first few minutes and wake up when we get there. <laughs> so I've missed out on a lot. Do people tend to look as a journey is winding up someplace when the whole point of it is is maybe best to notice what's
19: along the route? I see a, a parallel world to human relations, and um, it's about the way to get there and the process of growing e- with each other sometimes up and down you know it's like it's not always smooth and i think a lot of our journeys are like that um so it kind of stands for a metaphor of how we can connect uh, to people family friends and strangers
0: esteban and uh, aleandro gutierrez they are the hermanos gutierrez And the new album is El Bueno y El Malo. Thank you both very much for being with us.
19: It's been an honor. Thank you, Scott.
0: Climate change is forcing native villages in Alaska to relocate as riverbanks erode. The Infrastructure Law and Inflation Reduction Act allocated $170 million to tribal areas that are most effective. Most affected. Reporter Emily Schwing visited one community to find out how this infusion of federal cash might help.
21: Dora Matthew is the Environmental Threat Coordinator for the tribe in Shafornik. It's a small village of about 500 people in Western Alaska. During a tour, Matthew stops by Ben Flynn's house. She calls through a window with a giant crack down the middle.
22: Interview
18: you
5: at four. Interview you at four.
21: Matthew sets up an interview for me. (laughs) Four
5: o'clock. Okay.
21: And then she shows me how the house is sliding backwards. It sits above a riverbank that's eroding because the ground underneath used to be frozen and now it's thawing. So it's like the whole house is moving that way towards the river. Yeah. Oh, we'll wild.
5: Down soon.
21: The beams that support the house are tilted at a precarious angle.
5: See that? Whole, uh, the railing and to the. Porch? Oh yeah, it's like and separated. It's
21: There's an 18-inch gap between homeowner Ben Flynn's front porch and his house.
18: And I keep adding plywoods under my uh, door, doorstep. One kid fell on the on that crack.
21: That kid is one of his five grandchildren, who also live here. His grandchild is fine, but inside the cracked windows are a reminder that the three-bedroom house is becoming more and more unsafe. So it's so, you and your wife, mm-hmm. two daughters and two sons.
18: Two daughters and two some
21: That's six. And then, and then
18: who and else? And there's five grandchildren.
21: And five grandchildren. So that's 11 people. Yeah. Shafornick, like most villages in Alaska, is dealing with a severe housing shortage that's further complicated by the effects of climate change.
14: And if people get displaced, we don't have hotels. We don't have any vacant buildings we can put people in. Janet Eric is the president
21: of the traditional council in Shafornick. Her community recently received $3.4 million from the federal government to tackle climate displacement. The housing crisis here is also playing out in at least 100 other Alaska Native villages, but not all of them have received funding through the Biden administration's branch of tribal climate resilience. Shafornik aims to build 19 new, safer homes, but Eric says the federal money isn't enough.
14: I'm happy for the start, mm-hmm. At the same time, it irritates me that it's just enough for a start because the start means one, one season or just a couple of months, and then we have to halt everything and go begging again.
21: Some of the federal funding will help Shafornik's Tribal Council create a position to coordinate the work the rest of the money will pay for. The majority will purchase heavy equipment and build out a flat spot of ground for a single house. There's another home in Shafornik that sits at the bottom of a hill.
22: come in. Oh, come in. Okay.
21: I've never seen a house where the tilt of the floor is so severe. It's like the bottom of a boat, almost. Yeah. Job Abraham, who's in his 80s, can understand English. But he likes to speak his indigenous language, Yachtun. So Dora Matthews translates. He says his house has been sinking for years because the permafrost underneath is melting. He's
5: not comfortable with his situation, but he has to. And he's stuck. He's stuck.
21: The $3.4 million coming to Shafornik is only a fraction of what's needed to move residents to safer ground. Some estimates show it would take tens of millions of dollars to do it right in this village. Over the next four years, the federal government has allocated a total of $170 million for climate-related relocation nationwide. For NPR News, I'm Emily Schwing in Shafornick, Alaska.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jewish Arts Collaborative with Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, an innovative celebration at the Museum of Fine Arts. December 15th, jartsboston.org. Ceres, a nonprofit tackling the world's biggest sustainability challenges like the climate and water crises. Learn more at ceres.org wbur. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com.
22: From WBUR
13: in Boston, I'm Rupa chenoy
16: I'm Meghna Bardi. This is On Point.
13: I'm
2: Tisiana Deering.
13: This is Radio Boston.
16: I'm Scott Tong.
2: I'm Deepa Fernandez. I'm Robin Young. It's Here and Now. And I'm Lisa Mullins, host of All Things Considered. We all thank you so much if you made a contribution to our recent fundraiser and if
13: you haven't had a chance to, you still can. Give monthly at wbur.org. Thanks. I'm all things
1: considered executive producer Jonathan Kane and this is 90.9 wbur fm Boston, 92.7 wbua Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon, and this hour, Brittany Greiner, back on U.S. soil. ALSO, REPRESENTATIVE DEBBIE DINGLE OF MICHIGAN ON HER NEW CAUCUS, DOES HOUSE DEMOCRATIC LEADERSHIP FLY OVER THE HEART OF THE COUNTRY? AND KEVIN PAUL'S NEW BOOK OF POEMS, INSPIRED BY THE TIME HE SPENT WITH HIS ELDERLY MOTHER WHEN SHE BECAME ILL, THEY HAD A DIFFICULT RELATIONSHIP.
12: THE EASY THING WOULD BE FOR ME TO JUST THROW MY MOTHER AWAY AND JUST DISRESPECT HER. I STILL BELIEVE THAT THIS BOOK IS A LOVE POEM TO MY MOTHER.
0: AND LATER ENCOURAGING STATISTICS FROM Pittsburgh's POLICE REVIEW BOARD AND THE WORLD CUP. Brazil is out. Argentina is still in England and France later today. But first, we have our newscast. It's Saturday, December 10, 2022.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Russia has again knocked out power to Ukraine's southern port city of Odessa the second time this has happened this week. NPR's Greg Myrie reports Russia attacked with more than a dozen drones.
23: Ukraine's Air Force says it shot down 10 of 15 drones that were heading into Odessa before dawn. But the region's already weakened power grid could not withstand those that slammed into their target, leaving many residents without electricity. Ukraine says the drones were made in Iran. Russia began using these Iranian drones on a large scale in October, but had not been firing them in recent weeks. This past Monday, Russia launched cruise missiles at cities across the country. Most were shot down, but a number struck in and around Odessa. The city suffered extended blackouts, and power was just coming back as this drone attack took place. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv.
2: President Biden hosts African leaders next week for three days of wide-ranging talks. He's expected to announce his support for the African Union to join the G20 as a permanent member. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the
5: president is responding to a request from the African Union and from South Africa, the only current member of the group of 20 from the continent. It's past time
2: that Africa has permanent seats at the table in international organizations and initiatives. We need more African voices in international conversations that concern the global economy,
5: democracy and governance, climate change, health and security inside the g20 the african union would be able to advocate on climate and health issues president biden has also supported adding permanent seats to the u.n security council to include africa michelle kelleman npr news the state department
2: the keystone xl pipeline is in the news again with a spill at its pipeline in a creek in rural kansas the oil spill is estimated to be enough to fill an olympic-sized swimming pool Fred Knapp of Nebraska Public Media says it's a blow to the people there who love the land.
7: The land where the spill occurred has been in Bill Panbacker's family for more than a hundred years. When Bill's wife, Chris, first heard the news of Wednesday's spill, she reacted analytically like the newspaper reporter she is. But when she went right up next to it, her reaction was visceral.
12: It's just, it is what it is.
7: TC Energy's Keystone Pipeline spilled an estimated 14,000 barrels of oil, almost enough to fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Federal regulators say they'll require a complete investigation and a plan to prevent future spills before letting the pipeline operate again. For NPR News, I'm Fred Knapp in Lincoln, Nebraska.
2: This is NPR News in Washington.
5: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The flu is hitting Massachusetts early and hard this year. The Department of Public Health says more than 5,000 people tested positive for the flu last week, about double the previous week. Rates are higher now than at any time over the past three years. Nearly 60% of the cases are in children and teenagers. Doctors urge people to get vaccinated against the flu, wear a mask, and stay home when sick. On the MBTA, shuttle buses replaced trains at several red line stops this weekend for track work. The T says the affected stops extend from Harvard Square to Park Street. The second recount of a state representative election wraps up today. The Lunenburg Board of Registrars will publicly recount 4,104 ballots cast in the November election for the first Middlesex district. Recounts in the district's other five communities show Democrat Margaret Scarsdale with an 11-vote lead over Republican Andrew Shepard. A recount completed earlier this week in a North Shore House district put the Democratic challenger ahead of the Republican incumbent by a single vote. An outdoor art and light installation at Mount Auburn Cemetery kicks off today in celebration of the winter solstice. Solstice, Reflections on Winter Light, was created in partnership with Masari Studios. Matthew Stevens is the cemetery's president and CEO and he says the Solstice installation was designed to help people think about the shortest days and longest nights of the year and how they relate to their lives. If they had a crummy, terrible year, this will offer a moment of reflection, hopefully
0: inspiring them to think more about the light, the sort of not crumminess that is ahead. And if you had you know, a great year, then hopefully the light will continue
5: to shine for you know, the year ahead. The event will run through December 21st. In sports, last night the Bruins lost to the Coyotes 4-3, and tonight the Celtics are on the road against the Golden State Warriors. It's 32 degrees in Boston, a slight chance of some snow showers this afternoon, and highs in the mid-30s. WBUR supporters include Bed Bath & Beyond, with cleaning products too,
8: featuring a curated selection of brands including Shark, Ninja, and Casper. More at bedbathandbeyond.com.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for joining us today. Arizona, Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema is a Democrat no longer. She spent much of the last two years in an evenly divided Senate, carving out a reputation as a holdout in contentious legislative battles. The senator announced Thursday she is now an independent. KJZZ's Mark Brody in Phoenix joins us now. Mark, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And what did the senator have to say about why she changed her party affiliation?
11: Well, she talked about how partisanship is a problem in D.C. and that she's tried to be an independent voice for Arizona during her time there. I spoke with her right after she announced the shift, and she told me the move shouldn't really be a surprise to anyone, that this is how she's approached her job during her time in the Senate, that she's worked with both parties, that she has angered and frustrated both parties, and that nothing really will change now that she's a registered independent. She also did say that there was nothing specific that happened that pushed her away from the Democratic Party. What's the response been like in Arizona? Well, three Democratic members of the state's congressional delegation have responded with maybe not the nicest things to say, and that includes Congressman Ruben Gallego, who is widely seen as a candidate for that seat in 2024 and was thought to be planning a primary challenge to cinema, Uh, Two political analysts, one Democrat and one Republican with whom I spoke on Friday, both said they were not surprised. And both of them suggested the switch was made for political reasons, mainly to avoid a primary that seems like it would have been increasingly difficult for Cinema to win.
0: Of course, all of this comes on the eve of a new Congress. What could uh, the senator's switch mean for the next two years in the Senate?
11: Well, Cinema says she's going to continue to do her job the same way she's been doing it and she points to a number of bills she's worked on and gotten passed with Republicans she was, for example, very involved in the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the Respect for Marriage Act, which, of course, just went to the president this week. She's also working on an immigration bill now with North Carolina Republican Tom Tillis. So she says she plans to keep doing what she's been doing, just with a different letter after her name.
0: Of course, we have to ask, uh, what indications are there about the 2024 election? Will the senator run for
11: re-election? Well, that is the question. I mean, for what it's worth, when I asked her about 2024, she said she wasn't thinking about that at all, but a lot of politicos in Arizona don't seem to be buying that. So this is really where it could get interesting. If she runs, she would have to collect more signatures to get on the ballot as an independent than as a Democrat. Assuming she does that though, she can skip the primary and go straight to the general election. But some recent polls have shown Senator Sinema having trouble with a number of voting blocks. The analysts with whom I've spoken generally say the election will come down, as they so often do, to who the candidates are, both on the Democratic and Republican side, especially with Cinema as a potential third candidate. But they also point out in that three-way race, potentially, Cinema would not have to get 50 percent to win. She could potentially win with support in the 30s or so. And one analyst I spoke to said he doesn't think that would be impossible for her. It also seems pretty safe to say there are a lot of conversations happening now among elected officials in Arizona to see if this is a race they might like to get into.
0: KJZZ's Mark Brody, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Brittany Greiner is back on U.S. soil today. The basketball great arrived yesterday after a prisoner exchange with Russia. She was arrested and later convicted on minor drug charges and was held for nine months, recently at a work colony. President Biden praised Brittany Griner's fortitude. She endured mistreatment and a show show trial in Russia with
18: characteristic
0: grit and incredible dignity. And Pierce Kirk Ziegler reports on some of the
1: reaction and celebration surrounding Brittany Griner's release. As TV news footage showed Griner's plane arriving on the tarmac at the U.S. Army's joint base in San Antonio, fans and her loved ones breathed a sigh of relief. At the White House, Griner's wife, Sherelle, called the last nine months the darkest moments of their lives.
22: And today is just a happy day for me and my family, so um, I'm going to smile right now. (laughs) Um, Thank you.
1: Griner had been serving a nine year prison sentence after Russian customs officials found two vape cartridges and hashish oil in her luggage at a stop near the Moscow airport last February. Griner acknowledged having the pot, but said she had packed her bags in a hurry and didn't intend to break Russian law. Her case became a flashpoint for the broader collapsed relations between the U.S. and Russia. The Biden administration long referred to her as a hostage. Griner's high school basketball coach, Debbie Jackson, told Houston Public Media that when Griner was transferred to a penal colony and work camp, the coach nearly lost hope.
2: I'm so thankful Brittany's home. She really has been loved by everybody she's played with and come in contact with. And that's a real tribute to her.
1: For Jackson, Griner's imprisonment was just the latest adversity she overcame since coming out as gay at the age of 22 and graduating from Baylor and later drafted by the Phoenix Mercury.
2: She's a person that never looked for fame. That was not her goal. She never was really comfortable with publicity. She uh, just wanted to play, play hard, play for her teammates.
1: That joy was echoed yesterday by Griner's former teammates and fellow WNBA stars like Shanae Agumake of the L.A. Sparks. On ESPN, she called Griner's return to the U.S. a huge
10: moment. Because what BG represents simply by existing as a black queer woman, which is often criticized, which is often ignored,
12: this shows to the world that she's worth fighting for.
1: Greiner was released in exchange for Victor Boot, a Russian arms dealer who was convicted by a New York jury in 2011 on charges that included conspiracy to kill U.S. citizens and officials. The deal did not include the release of American Paul Whelan from the same prison. Sherelle Greiner said she and Brittany are committed to fighting to bringing Whelan home as well.
14: As we
22: celebrate BG being home, we do understand that there are still people out here who are enduring what I endured the last nine months of missing tremendously, their loved
1: ones. But for now, Sherelle Greiner beamed and said her family is once again whole. Kirk Sigler, NPR News. Borodjanka,
0: Ukraine, was largely reduced to rubble. During the first days of the Russian invasion, it has become a symbol of the devastation inflicted by Russian forces. And NPR's Greg Myrie looks at how this small, battered town doing these days.
23: The town of Borodjanka is trying to return to some of its traditional rhythms, like this Sunday morning service at an orthodox church. But the challenges seem overwhelming. The main street is an unbroken line of charred and crumbling buildings. Only a few places, like a small grocery store and a coffee shop, are open for business. The head of the regional government here is Jorge Yerko. He's effectively the mayor of the town and the surrounding villages.
11: So this is my office right now. This is where we have
23: meetings. His office is an empty classroom at the high school. His desk is where the teacher would sit. During the week, he shares the school with nearly a thousand students. The school also serves as a shelter, providing heat, food, and water for the community when extended blackouts hit. Power cuts have lasted up to 24 hours, he says. In this agricultural region, farming equipment and warehouses were destroyed. He estimates business activity is one-third of what it was. At the start of the war, the Russians tried to storm the capital, Kyiv. Ukrainian forces held their ground, but not until the Russians had laid waste to a number of outlying towns, including Borodjanka, 35 miles northwest of the capital. 29-year-old Serhii Hanidenko was among the few people who stayed when Russian troops occupied the town.
13: It was scary. I just go to church and I hope God will help us.
23: He was relatively fortunate. His home is in a village outside town and was not damaged. But many were left homeless. They include more than 200 people living in prefabricated, dormitory-style housing modules provided by Poland. Olha Kobzar is in charge.
15: The people are coming mostly from the houses on the main street, the ones that were destroyed and burned down.
23: While we're talking, the lights go out, leaving us standing in a dark hallway. She says she'll wait a while to see if the power comes back. And if it starts to get chilly, then she'll turn on the generator. The temporary housing module is full with families and small rooms with bunk beds. Kobzar says many more would come if there was more space. We try to accommodate everybody. We are helping older people, we are helping
15: kids. We have computers where students can study online.
23: In the center of town is a bust of Ukraine's national poet. Taras Shevchenko, a champion of Ukrainian independence from Russia way back in the 19th century. He wrote, It's bad to be in chains and die a slave. There are now holes in the forehead of his bust, presumably from Russian bullets. The surrounding devastation in the town has provided the canvas for a modern artist, the renowned British street artist Banksy. Again, here's the town's top official, Yerko.
11: I didn't know he was here. People told me two days
23: after it happened. Banksy surreptitiously painted on several badly scarred walls last month. One image shows a young boy tossing a man to the floor. Both are in martial arts attire. The man is widely assumed to be Russian leader Vladimir Putin, a judo enthusiast. People are happy we are getting this attention,
11: but the paintings are on buildings that were destroyed. We're planning to remove the paintings and put them somewhere else.
23: But where? Yurko shrugs his shoulders. Like many things in Borodjanka, it's part of a very uncertain future. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Borodjanka, Ukraine.
0: And you're listening to NPR News.
5: This is 90.9 WBUR. Ahead on Weekend Edition, Kevin Powell discusses his new poetry collection, Grocery Shopping with My Mother. Stay informed about a full range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work.
4: Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR details at wbur.org/cars.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bouldering Project in Union Square, offering a learn to climb program with instruction, rental shoes, and a one-month membership. Details at bostonboulderingproject.com. The Greater Boston Food Bank, help put joy on every plate this holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org/wbur. And the Harvard Art Museums open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays and new museums at night events, harvardartmuseums.org.
2: I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. An attack by Russian drones has left the Ukrainian southern port city of Odessa without power. All but the most essential infrastructure has been disabled. Former FTX, CEO Sam Bankman-Fried went on Twitter to tell the House Financial Services Committee chair that he's willing to testify next week on Capitol Hill, but he cautioned he might not be totally helpful as the panel probes the failed cryptocurrency exchange. With a major storm expected to deliver four feet of snow this weekend, the U.S. Forest Service has activated a backcountry avalanche watch in the central Sierra, including the Lake Tahoe region. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages 3 and up. Learn more at LittlePassports.com NPR. This is NPR.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Does the National Democratic Party have a problem in heartland America? Representative Debbie Dingell of Michigan, who ran and lost for a caucus leadership position in the House, displayed a map that shows the home states of caucus leaders. They're all from coastal states, New York, California, Massachusetts, Maryland. Representative Dingell is forming what's called the Heartland Caucus of Democrats, concerned their party isn't concerned enough with issues felt deeply in the Midwest. Representative Dingle joins us from her district in Michigan. Thanks so much for being with us.
22: It's good to be with you.
0: Republicans often call Democrats the coastal party. Is that true?
22: No, it's not. Would I be a member of Congress and a lot of my other colleagues if we did not have representation from the heartland? Though I think it's important at times that we need to make sure that our voices are heard. We are not gonna win the majority back in the House without members of Congress from the heartland. Uh, But I think that our new leadership knows that and understands that. And what issues
0: would you like to press?
22: well there are a number i mean manufacturing union workers trade we're going to have reauthorization of the agricultural bill next year they're very significant rural areas in our heartlands and their issues are have different perspectives than california does but we are a mosaic we're just making sure that our perspective is heard and that we're educating people and that we're out there making sure that those in the heartland know that we do care. Hmm.
0: Representative Marcy Capture of Ohio, your colleague's been quoted this week saying she couldn't get fellow Democrats on the uh, Special Committee on Economic Fairness to even mention the Midwest in their final report. Does that happen one way or another when Midwestern Democrats try to get attention to problems in their part of the country?
22: So I think it's important that we made our voice heard. But I I can tell you that Hakeem and Catherine and Pete have all made it very clear that it is very important that the Heartland be included. Hakeem has called me and said, all three of them, Catherine We we
0: should explain Hakeem Jeffries, of course, is the uh, leader of the House Democrats.
22: No, I'm sorry. Catherine Clark will be the whip and Pete will be— Chair of the caucus. They have all said we want to be supportive. What are the different things that we can do? And th- I have to say that they know that it matters. But you know, the other thing I want to point out to you is that the same time this was all going on, the president made a decision on the presidential primaries that it needed to be more reflective of the country. And it's been a 30-year fight to make sure that we have a presidential nominating system that includes the diversity of our country in those early states. And the president himself said there is no road to the White House that doesn't go through the heartland. So we just have to be intentional and deliberate.
0: What do you think about the uh, the administration's plan to, to forgive, which after all means to cancel billions of dollars in student loans? Did it somehow make an implicit statement that, that the party considers college more valuable than the working class?
22: You know, everybody wants to pit people against each other. I know many union workers who have children with college debt have it themselves. I think this president has worked very hard, to let the working men and women who are members of the union know that he cares for them and fights for them we do have to talk to them we cannot take them for granted i -hmm. I had some of the toughest union town halls quite frankly this year than i had in 16 but i stay there i talk to them we have to make sure that they understand what is being done for them and we've got to do a better job of communicating how we are helping them
0: what made those uh Town Hall's rough, Representative Dingle. What what did people say to you?
22: Uh, they were very much listening to Fox, as I heard some of those talking points. They didn't think that people cared. They saw money going to a lot of people. People were worried about inflation and gas prices, and they hear what's happening in california and think that they don't matter well they do matter and president biden has made it very clear and has been fighting for those working jobs quite frankly i think it took the pandemic and people to see for real how we had shipped jobs overseas our supply chain had gone overseas we're making very concerted efforts now to bring that supply chain home not only is it economic security but it's national security
0: has The Democratic Party sometimes seem to favor high tech over factory jobs.
22: You know, the Republican Party does that too sometimes. By the way, we spend too much time pitting people, pitting issues against each other. What we have to do is to make sure all the issues are heard and not make false choices, but figure out a way that we bring everybody to the table. Quite frankly, I'm very proud of what I did with the unions and the environmentalist groups talking about electric vehicles. It was a table that we worked on for six months that resulted in the announcement that the president made last August at the White House that had UAW environmentalists and the auto companies themselves buy in because people talk to each other, listen to concerns, found common ground. That's what we need to do more of.
0: Representative Debbie Dingell of Michigan, thanks so much for being
22: with us. Thank you for having me.
0: Kevin Powell's latest poems are written during what he calls, in an introductory note, some of the most difficult and introspective moments of my entire life. I am simply happy to be alive, truly alive again his new collection, Grocery Shopping with My Mother. And Kevin Paul, one of America's most acclaimed poets and hip-hop voices, joins us now from Brooklyn. Thank you so much for being with us.
12: Thank you so much for having me, Mr. Simon. I really, really, really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.
0: What were you going through, living through, as you wrote these poems?
12: My mother getting sick, first and foremost. Um, I'm an only child, and I had to do what a lot of us in America end up doing. The parent becomes the child, the child becomes the parent, the caretaker. And it was a lot emotionally to process because also my relationship with my mother is very complicated because it was just her and I all these years. And so I went through all of that. I went through a sad divorce. My first marriage ended when COVID hit. One of my close, close friends committed suicide, sadly. And so it was a lot of stuff personally. And so it forced me for the first time in 14 years to start writing some things down, because I I love the essay as a form. But I said, you know, the economy of poetry is where I want to get to, because there's so much I want to express.
0: Let me get you to read part two of your title poem, Grocery Shopping with My Mother.
12: Dear God, my mother does not know that I often walk behind her on purpose as she grabs a pound of hamburger, a bag of sugar, a loaf of bread, a box of cereal, aisle after aisle my heart spills a bucket of suds aisle after aisle my eyes spill two buckets of suds like that day she slid as a baseball runner would onto the floor in her senior citizen apartment from her favorite chair and it took my entire back strength to boost my mother's plump frame to get up from her recliner and before i could there we were one two three four five seconds her on the floor me on the floor when she and i stared at each other as we may have stared at each other when I was a scared baby and her a scared young woman. And in that very moment, I wanted to tell my mother what she meant to me, but could not because my mother and I have never hugged, have never kissed, have never said, I love you. And here I was, the caretaker of a person who did not care to be touched by anyone.
0: So your mother never touched you?
12: No, I didn't know how to hug anyone until I got to college and someone tried to hug me my freshman year in college and I recoiled because I had never experienced any kind of uh, emotional affection. And, you know, I think what happens with a lot of us, as you know, um, a lot of us, whether you came, your ancestors came from Europe or from Asia, or if your families came from the South, like my mother came from the South, you just kind of did what you had to do to survive. And what was not involved in the equation a lot of times was just emotional love, you know, showing how you felt about folks. and so. That's what really made the situation deep for me with my mom. It's like I have to take care of her, but I also still am that little boy inside of me who wanted to be hugged. Plus, I owe it to them because I would not be who I am. As a writer, if it wasn't for my mother, she took me to the library when I was 8 years old. She introduced me to storytelling. Even though she has a grade school education, it was my mother who made me fall in love with words. It was her.
0: It wasn't just that your mother didn't hug you. She... um Let me put it this way. She wasn't kind to you.
12: There was, um, (laughs) I'll put it to you like this. When I was a kid growing up, um, I remember there was a movie with Faye Dunaway called Mommy Dearest. And I remember saying to myself, I relate to this. I love my mother unconditionally. I have great compassion for her. And I don't know what it's like, Mr. Simon, to be a woman in this world, to have to deal with sexism, to be a poor person, has to deal with classism, and then to be a a, a Black person, to deal with racism. She had to deal with all those different isms and try to raise a child by herself. It was very difficult, you know what I mean? And so I had to take a step back and, you know, years of therapy, honestly, years of counseling and learn how to forgive. Because I think the big thing is, you know, here I am, someone who cares about the world. You know, I, I I don't want to see a world where there's any kind of hatred, any kind of violence, any of that stuff at this point in my life. But if I can't forgive my mother, then I feel like I'm a hypocrite.
0: But she... Uh,
12: you can say it. All
0: right, well, she beat
12: it. you. She did. Part of the reason why I'm a writer, part of the reason why I did write this book, grocery shopping with my mother, is because I believe that it's, it's a form of healing. Like, we have to be honest about this stuff. And so my job as an artist, as a writer, as a poet, is to paint a picture and say here's the different way we can go because the easy thing would be for me to just throw my mother away and just disrespect her i still believe that this book is a love poem to my mother yeah
0: i don't want to leave your father totally out of this although it sounds like he left himself out of your life
12: <laughs> yes he did
0: but your first line is i forgive you
12: you know when i was a child I, my father wasn't there my mother and father never married um, i saw him a couple times and then he was gone and it left a huge what I call a father hole and what I've realized throughout my writings through the years, I've talked about, since I was a very young writer, you know, absence, abandonment, the the craving for for love and emotional connections. You know, I write these poems because I think about family a lot, ultimately. You know, what does family look like? What does it mean, blood relatives? You know, and I think about our country right now and all the hurt that's out there and, and, the, and the disconnects and how, you know, literally you can have someone, think about just the last couple of years, You've had people shoot up a black church in uh, South Carolina, a Jewish synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a queer club in Colorado. And you start to, I start looking at the backstories of these people who are these shooters, usually males, and you see that there's some disconnect from any kind of love, any kind of family, any kind of sense of community. And the reason why I write the way I do and and deal with very painful subject matters is because I don't want to spend the rest of my life hurting other people.
0: Let me ask you to read from that poem, if you could. Okay.
12: I forgive you for the hurt forever lurking there like a pipe bomb in my living room, for the hurt forever sleeping there like an unwanted partner in my bedroom. I forgive you because I heard how years later on your death march with a body part or two chopped off, missing, you asked your other children for me, the only one not there, the only one up north, the only one who had barely ever seen you, the only one who did not know you, the only one who never called you, dad or pop or sir. I forgive you for dying without my knowing. Yet I cried a decade later when I found out, because the hole was still there. I forgive you because I also forgive me for all those many years I hated myself for having no father. Um, I've never read that aloud. This is—I mean, this poem, this book is new. I've not read yeah. that aloud, so that was really hard. Um, well, thank you for reading it. You know. Uh, What is my poetry book ultimately about? Um, No matter what kind of parent you are, no matter what your gender identity is, just show up for your kids emotionally. Because if you don't, they end up carrying this stuff into their adult lives. And even though they may be adults, there's still that little child inside of them that's hurting.
0: Kevin Powell, a great poet. His new collection, Grocery Shopping with My Mother. Thank you so much for
12: being with us. Thank you for having me, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you we
0: to Weekend Edition from NPR News. An experimental drug is raising hope for the treatment of Alzheimer's. But it does come with some risks. NPR's John Hamilton takes a look at those risks and what they might mean for those who hope to try the new drug. The drug, called Lecanemab only
24: slows down Alzheimer's a bit, but it dominated last week's clinical trials on Alzheimer's disease meeting in San Francisco. Dr. Eric Ryman was there. He's the executive director of Banner Alzheimer's Institute in Phoenix.
10: There was a feeling of elation that this was a milestone in the fight against Alzheimer's disease and very important.
24: A study of nearly 1800 people in the early stages of Alzheimer's found that lecanemab slowed down declines in memory and thinking by 27%. Ryman says that's a modest but meaningful benefit from the drug. It had effects on a
10: range of cognitive and functional measurements that are important to families and family caregivers, but clearly a treatment by itself that is not going to stop the progression of the disease.
24: Lecanemab contains antibodies designed to remove a substance called amyloid from the brain. That makes it similar to the controversial drug Aduhelm, which received a conditional approval from the Food and Drug Administration last year. The agency acted despite conflicting evidence on whether Aduhelm slows down the disease. Ryman says the results with lecanemab are much clearer.
10: I'll be surprised if it doesn't get full approval.
24: Probably sometime next year. Both Adjuhelm and lecanemab have risks, including a condition known as ARIA. Dr. Sharon Cohen, medical director of the Toronto Memory Program in Canada, says when a brain scan shows ARIA, it's a sign of either swelling or bleeding.
25: This sounds very dramatic to have swelling in the brain or bleeding in the brain. And of course, nobody wants that.
24: But Cohen says even though ARIA is common, it rarely has a big impact on patients' health.
25: What we've learned over time is that a very small proportion of individuals will have symptoms. And when symptoms arise, they are usually transient, mild to moderate, and resolve.
24: In rare cases, though, patients can experience brain damage or even death. Cohen says the risks of ARIA appear to be higher in people who have very high levels of amyloid in the brain or are taking blood thinners.
25: There will be patients for whom this is not a good therapy.
24: Lecanemab and other drugs that remove amyloid have another side effect that is more mysterious. They seem to cause the brain to shrink. And that concerns Dr. Madef Tambasetti, a neurologist at the National Institute on Aging, a part of the National Institutes of
20: Health. What is a little worrying to me is that these drugs might be worsening the degenerative process that is associated with disease progression.
24: Alzheimer's itself causes the brain to shrink, a sign that neurons are dying. So Thambasetti, whose views are independent of the NIH, expected Alzheimer's drugs to limit shrinkage rather
20: than accelerate it. It's incumbent upon drug developers and researchers to try and prove that these changes are benign and do not represent a significant adverse event.
24: Dr. Risa Sperling directs the Center for Alzheimer's Research and Treatment at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. She says serious side effects are common in treating other diseases,
14: like cancer. Alzheimer's is a terrible disease, and I think many patients and their physicians will be willing to take some risk, and our work is to minimize the risk.
24: About two million Alzheimer's patients in the U.S. are potential candidates for lacanumab. John Hamilton, NPR News.
0: This is NPR News.
5: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. The Federal Transit Administration is rejecting more than half of the MBTA's proposed safety plans. In a scathing report released in August, the FTA identified several urgently needed safety upgrades for the T. The Boston Globe reports this is the second time the FTA has sent the T back to the drawing board. The T has to submit new plans by January 3rd. Investigators are looking into the death of a worker who fell off a crane at Conley Terminal in South Boston. State police say the man was doing maintenance on the crane yesterday morning when he fell from a 150-foot platform. The man accused of killing one man and injuring 18 people when he crashed his car into an Apple store in Hingham is out on bail. 53-year-old Bradley Ryan was released on $100,000 bail. It is 32 degrees in Boston, some snow showers around today, and highs in the mid-30s. This is WBUR.
13: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. And the Jewish Arts Collaborative with Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, an innovative celebration at the Museum of Fine Arts, December 15th, jartsboston.org. Join
4: WBUR for a Boston holiday tradition like no other. Our annual live reading of A Christmas Carol on Tuesday evening, December 20th. Your favorite WBUR voices perform the classic story live at the Omni Parker House in Boston. Proceeds benefit Rosie's Place, a sanctuary for women in need. Come out for the season and Rosie's Place. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events.
13: Sponsored in part by Barely Read Books. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One, offering Capital One Shopping, a downloadable browser extension that searches various sites for shoppers. What's in your wallet? More at CapitalOneShopping.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at AECF.org and from the listeners who support this NPR station.
15: This
0: is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. After all the marches, protests, and displays of solidarity and recent memory, is policing in America becoming more equitable, or at least more accountable? In Pittsburgh, maybe. The Citizen Police Review Board there says that it has received the fewest number of complaints in its history. The executive director of the board is Beth Pittenger. She joins us now. Ms. Pittenger, thanks so much for being with us.
26: Thank you for having us.
0: What do the most recent statistics say and tell you?
26: Well, it's interesting. In the last five years, we're about 50 complaints less than we had in 2018. And if we look at the uh, interruption of COVID and the post-George Floyd protests, we saw a little bit of a bump there. But now we're back down to 220, as of today, I believe, 221.
0: Has the nature of the complaints changed at all or shifted one way or another?
26: Yes. And that's probably what's most important. The early years of the board, most of the complaints were related to the use of force. Today, close to 60% for the last six or seven years has been related solely to the demeanors of officers what would we we would call unbecoming conduct compared to the complaints of earlier years which did indeed deal with force, warrantless activity, failure to report?
0: Has this just shown that consciousness and and good training can improve things? because i I don't want to in any way excuse any form of official misbehavior by a police officer, but there's a you know, there's a big difference between mouthing off to somebody on the street and and using force. Yes. What's, what's been responsible for the change there?
26: There, I think you are correct, that better training, better preparation. I think the training is important. And it, the lawsuits and what we're seeing recently in the country where officers are being held accountable criminally.
0: So all, all of the high-profile prosecutions and convictions may have had a deterrent effect?
26: Yes, I think so. I think departments have recognized that they have a duty to assure that these officers, when they go out, know what's okay and what's not okay. And now we're seeing where some departments are eliminating any prerequisite education for police officers. So here in the city, there's an intention to eliminate 60 college credit requirement. That doesn't seem like a lot, but when you look at the value of attaining 60 credits or the equivalent through life experience, you have a person who's accepted a responsibility for attaining the qualification for a job they want. They've demonstrated the personal discipline. They've gone through the rigors of education. They've developed a new perspective, you would hope, but a more informed perspective on the human condition. When you're just coming out of high school and you want to be a cop, well, I'm not sure that that's appropriate.
0: So I understand it, Miss Pittenger, this um, the review board was not a new idea. It didn't come after the deaths of Trayvon Martin or Michael Brown, but in 1997, when there were allegations of civil rights violations. How did you go about to try and make that relationship work between the board and the city? Oh, I'd say it's
26: it's still in progress. We had some issues, I guess, establishing our identity and our independence from. The local political structure. And to some degree that still remains, I think, a bit of a challenge, but we serve as a as a check and a balance where the usual traditional checks and balances are a little bit out of out of sync.
0: We might need to explain to a national audience, Pittsburgh, um, and I say this as a Chicagoan, we're not talking about a Republican political structure in Pittsburgh, but democratic authority that stretches back for decades.
26: Yes, absolutely, generations. And so that introduces a whole other interesting dynamic to the local culture related to the values of the traditional Democrats and then the progressive Democrats and the socialist Democrats. You know, you have all of those competing interests. Some don't want police at all. Some want police to do what they tell them to do. And others are traditionalists and you have traditional expectation of law enforcement as, you know, as a police department. Our board, of course, has, I think, upheld more traditional values, but there are expectations that the board has that what the local police department does and what their policies and procedures direct them to do would be lawful, consistent, procedurally just, and that's the key here in Pittsburgh. I think we have at least arrived at a place of mutual respect between the board and the Bureau of Police.
0: Beth Pittenger is executive director of Pittsburgh Citizens Police Review Board. Thank you so much for being with us,
26: Scott. Thank you, and I hope maybe over the years we can chat again as things evolve.
0: It's the season for raising a glass, mulled wine, Christmas punch, apple cider, and of course, bubbly. Is that Mountain Dew later today? And all things considered, a sommelier mix. Join in giving holiday beverages accessible and inclusive. No expensive bottles or alcohol required. You can listen live at this station's website or at npr.org. And now it's time for sports. Argentina and Croatia move up. Big money moves in baseball, but first a human loss at the World Cup. Howard Bryant of Meadowlock Media joins us. Howard, thanks for being with us.
6: Good morning, Scott.
0: Grant Wall, a great soccer journalist, uh, died on the job in Doha. Uh, he was just 48. He'd covered many World Cups. Um, and just last month was briefly detained and refused entry uh, at the stadium uh, in Doha because he made a point of wearing a rainbow T-shirt
6: yeah it's just devastating grant was part of our group at metal Arc. he was on a soccer podcast uh he was on our podcast uh, the metal Arcus podcast just uh less than two weeks ago talking about the world cup nobody was more enthusiastic about the game nobody was more plugged in in terms of knowledge of the sport interest in the sport it's just really really devastating and on top of the the detaining and the rest of it you um just just need more information because it's it's you know you don't want your brain to take you to those places but yeah. um i really hope that that there was nothing foul afoot as his uh, i believe his brother was suggesting um uh, just incredibly sad story yeah
0: let me do ask about the games uh, at hand brazil um Versus Croatia, Argentina versus the Netherlands, both decided by penalty kicks. Croatia and Argentina move on, but this afternoon, France versus England. What are you yeah, watching I'm, for, Howard?
6: Yeah, well, I'm I'm watching to see if I could find some enjoyment in these games with this news yeah. and also the fact that these games have been shrouded by the, the difficulties and by the corruption that came with Qatar getting the games in the first place. But on the field, uh, we're watching France and Kylian Mbappe, just an amazing, amazing uh, striker for for the French. She's a phenomenal talent. If you're not a soccer fan, la,
25: but... la, la, <laughs> I, was Sorry, I I don't know who's
6: shouting that. Yeah, that, that rivals your fear the deer. Um, yeah. So he's he's an unbelievable talent, and there's that. I feel very badly for the Dutch against Argentina. They were going for their first World Cup ever, yeah. and uh, championship didn't get there. You know, you've got the stars out there. You've got Messi and Ronaldo and the rest, but for my money, Mbappe's the guy, and the, and the French are the defending champions, and so... They've got a very good chance to repeat.
0: Let me ask you about some winter moves in baseball. Uh, The Yankees essentially gave Aaron Judge the keys to Manhattan, the Bronx, and Staten Island, too. (laughs) But the Red Sox couldn't hold on to Xander Bogarts, could they?
6: No, no. And Red Sox Nation is an unhappy nation right now. Xander Bogarts, two-time World Series champion with the Red Sox, one of the heart and soul of this this team. And... uh, we know the money's huge. We know the money's ridiculous now. Xander got um, 11 years and 280 million from the Padres, and Aaron Judge got almost 400 million, and Trey Turner got 300 million from the Phillies. But there is still, as uh, the old Yankee manager Joe Torre would always say, there's still a beating heart to this game, yeah, and yeah. the fans do want to see their favorite players. And the fact that the Red Sox are one of those teams where everybody says, well, they can afford it. Maybe they. <laughs> decided that he wasn't worth it or decided that the money was too big for them. But boy, you lose a guy like Bogarts, you lose a lot of the reason why you're watching this particular team. It's not just laundry, Scott Simon.
0: I I want to note uh, a magnificent humanitarian gesture by the Chicago Cubs. They signed Cody Bellinger, a former MVP who hasn't hit much above 200 in recent years, to a a one-year $17 million contract. I think that's wonderfully wonderfully thoughtful.
6: Yes, because it is the giving season. Uh, That's right. Thank you for reminding me. Quickly, Celtics play Warriors. Call it. Boston Celtics best team in basketball, Golden State Warriors, defending champions. I'm going to sit and watch and uh, hopefully a rematch in June.
0: Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media, thanks so much for being
6: with us. Yeah, my pleasure, Scott.
0: (laughs) Jamil Kochai is an accomplished man. He was born to Afghan parents. In a refugee camp in Pakistan, he is now a successful author and Penn-Hemingway Award finalist. He credits much of his success to his second-grade teacher, Susanna Lung. He spoke with the in August shortly after their reunion at a reading event for his latest book, The Haunting of Haji Hotak, and asked the author how his teacher had helped him.
17: Well, oh, I mean, you know, it, it, it all starts from, from the beginning. I grew up in a household that was uh, filled with women who spoke just entirely Pashto and Farsi. And so, you know, I was starting second grade completely terrified. I didn't know my alphabets. I knew like 10 letters. But that was when I was fortunate enough to meet uh, Mrs. Lung for the first time, who, um, you know, within the course of a year, by, by staying with me after school, taught me how to read and write. Remember a couple of scenes for
0: us, if you can. Of of uh, Mrs. Lung helping you
17: out. Yeah, you know, I mean, the main thing that I recall about Mrs. Lung in particular is just the warmth with which she taught. Um, before before then, you know, during kindergarten, I I kept getting punished for for not uh, understanding or for not obeying directions, and so I think in a in a way, I associated learning or school with with punishment. But Mrs. Lung just she completely changed that for me. How long have you been searching for her? What what set that off? Oh, you know, it's it's been, um yeah, it's been 22 years now. Uh, it's uh, ever since high school, my, my parents just, they kept emphasizing to me, you know, that, you know, you owe this all to Mrs. Lung, you've got to get back in touch with Mrs. Lung. And so I started scouring the internet, I, I looked up her name, unfortunately, I didn't know Susanna's first name at the time. And so I was typing in Mrs. Lung, I went back to my elementary school, I asked them, I hit a dead end there, I went back to the district office office so it was probably mm. around you know my 20s or so that I just sort of gave up on the search and then in 2019 when my first novel came out I ended up writing this essay and in the essay I mentioned uh, Mrs. Lung and how important she was to my to my development as a reader and as a writer and uh, and and you know lo and behold the the essay somehow it, it got to her but it wasn't until I was doing a reading event for the Haunting of Haji. well Church. let
0: me let me hold on to that thought absolutely we're joined now by Susanna Lung. Thank you very much for being with us, Mrs. Lung.
25: Oh, thank you, Scott, for having me.
0: So how did you hear about this brilliant student?
25: Well, I was in my neurologist's office and she said, you're a teacher. Did you teach in West Sac? I said, yes. She said, well, I have this article from this young man and it's probably about you. Oh and my I was just, I, I was floored. Yeah, And when I saw who it was, I mean, of course, he looks nothing like he did then. <laughs> he was just this little guy, and he had needs, and I was fortunate enough to be able to fulfill them.
0: What was that first phone conversation
25: like? When Jamil's dad got on the phone, I started to cry because he was just, just so grateful and, you know... I, I can't words can't express.
0: Oh boy, um, you were making an appearance in Davis, California. Scores of people turned out to applaud this fantastically successful author. <laughs> Who did you see?
17: Well, you know it's funny because when I when I first went up uh, to sort of to introduce the book, um, uh, I, I did I hadn't recognized her. It wasn't until after. And I have to admit, it was the, it was that same sense of, um, just immediate warmth and kindness, you know, it, it was like a seven-year-old Jamil uh, hugging his second grade teacher again. And, and that's what it felt like.
25: <laughs> I was, I was blown away. He's, he's gotten bigger. <laughs> <laughs> that guy, little guy turned into a, just a, a wonderful, uh, man that writes beautifully, just writes beautifully. Yeah.
0: Mrs. Lung, what's important to being a good teacher, do you think?
25: I think passion. If you don't have passion for it, it's a tough job. If you have passion for it, it's heaven.
0: Uh, What's it like for you, Mr. Kochai, to be able to personally thank this person? You know, we get, I don't know, 20, 30 teachers in our lives.
17: To me, it feels like a miracle. I don't know what else to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just—it was just this tremendous surprise, and it felt—you know—I'm a writer, so I, I dabble in stories all the time, and so it just felt like the perfect ending to this to this long story. This has the makings of a great memoir, doesn't it? <laughs> I think so.
25: <laughs> if anybody can do it justice, you can.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Jamil Jen Kochai, and his former teacher, Susanna Lung. Who knows who you'll meet along the road next, Mr. Kochai? Hey, I'm looking forward to it. Well, thank you. And Mrs. Lung, thank you. Thank you for what you've done for literature.
25: Oh, thanks.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at ajws.org. And from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public.
5: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. And be sure to listen to Weekend Edition again tomorrow morning here at 90.9 WBUR. We'll bring you my conversations with the mayors of Medford and Somerville about the long-delayed MBTA Green Line extension that opens Monday and how it will change the lives of their residents. Listen again when you wake up tomorrow. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock. We're funded by
8: you, our listeners, and by LabShares Newton, providing fully equipped BL2 lab space for biotechnology startups right next to Cambridge. Learn more at labshares.com.
22: Hi there. It's Margaret Lowe, WBUR CEO, here to say thank you to everybody who gave so generously during our end of the year fundraiser. You helped us surpass our goal which is incredible. You know the late great jazz poet Gil Scott Heron once said nobody can do everything but everybody can do something and that's exactly what you did thank you again and have a wonderful holiday season I'm here and now executive producer Carleen Watson and this is
10: 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.